every content we create for the blog, it has to be back because of like some SEO opportunity. Um, otherwise, it's really tough to make content marketing work. Hey, my name is Felix Tian. I'm the host of Shopify Masters, a weekly podcast powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. Each week, we invite entrepreneurs like you to share what they've learned growing successful e-commerce businesses. In this episode, you'll learn why they started with PPC first, why you want to find influencers that only want commission, and why every content you create needs to live and die by SEO data. Today, I'm joined by Wilson Hung and Jack Meredith from Kettle and Fire. Kettle and Fire is the first and only grass-fed, non-frozen bone broth company. It was started in 2013. Welcome, guys. Hey, happy to be here. Okay, so you guys were not, I guess, originally a part of the, the founding team. Is that is that right? Uh, that's correct. Uh, Jack was the first hire. And then we came on when they started like the kettleandfire.com. So before they were selling it on Thrive Market, which is like a wholesaler. And then once they decided to create their own uh, website, kettleandfire.com, that's when we joined and Jack was the first hire. And then I joined about three months afterwards. And then, yeah, that's, that was back in like 2016. Got it. Yeah, we'd love to hear from from both of you what made you guys attracted to working at Kettle and Fire. So, uh, pretty, I guess, interesting timeline of events. So, I came from the event ticketing in- industry, so uh, selling software and marketing that. And, and uh, how I got connected with Kettle and Fire is through Justin, our CEO. Um, he has a online marketing background and has built like a bunch of courses and everything. And I actually found one of his online marketing courses. So, got connected in through there. Um, we stayed in touch on like an infrequent basis. And then out of the blue, about two and a half years ago, he pinged me and said, hey, would you be interested in freelancing for this bone broth company that I'm starting? Uh, my first reaction was, what is bone broth? I have no idea what that is. Um, but I was interested in working with him because I, I looked up to him and I thought he did a lot of cool stuff. So I uh, took the leap and very quickly started really falling in love with e-commerce and the company and what we were all about and uh, just the high quality products that we were, were shipping. And so that got me excited and um, led me to join full time. Yeah. And my story is pretty much exact same. Took the same course as Jack at the time. It was called like programming for marketers. So that's how I first knew Justin. Uh, he also has like a book called Traction, uh, which I read. So and that was like, I already knew of Justin. And then at that time, I was working at a company called like Sumo Me. They did like pop-ups and I was doing like content marketing back then. Uh, so like I wrote an article and Justin also pinged, uh, talked about Bone Broth and then same story with Jack. And that's ultimately how we uh, started working with Justin. Yeah, that must have been an amazing experience, you know, working with these obviously experienced entrepreneurs, experienced online marketers, and you get to come in at the at the the very beginning to kind of help kick things off. So what was the early days? Like, what were you guys focused on at the very beginning? The first, so maybe I can just give you a quick high level of like, um, kind of like our trajectories in terms of channels. But mm-hmm. basically, outside of Thrive Market, which was the wholesaler, uh, basically, Justin wanted to start owning his own like kettleandfire.com. So first one was paid search. Um, basically, the purpose of paid search was just like is the highest probability of success. Um, so we use that to optimize pretty much like the sales and traffic to have like an optimized funnel. So once we actually proved our funnel could actually convert, uh, Jack started up the affiliate channel. And that's where influencers started coming on board. 
Uh, so basically, we would just give them a percent commission. So for example, Paleo Hacks, Wellness Mama, all these big bloggers with big email lists. Um, so then once the affiliate channel was up and running, we were able to reinvest the profit into content marketing and SEO, just because at that time we saw like a pretty big uh, opportunity. And basically after content marketing, SEO, that led to Facebook ads, just because there's a larger retargeting audience. And then from Facebook ads, it just opened up to all the other channels that we're working on now. Got it. So is this like a progression that you recommend others take? It sounds like you start with PPC, influencer marketing, SEO slash content marketing, and then Facebook ads. Uh, I'd like to hear Jack's thoughts on this as well, but I wouldn't just recommend it because we did it. It's like the, I think it's the common mistake everyone does. Like they'll read about like how we do it or to hear like from podcast episodes or reading on content. And then that's why you see people just start doing like Facebook messenger bots, even though they don't have like the context or the proper stage of the company. So it really depends on your business. So for example, for paid search, it's like, okay, what's the search volumes? What's your average order values? Like what's the margins on your product? Depending on that, maybe paid search isn't the best option and maybe you need to go for a lower customer acquisition cost channel. So maybe, I don't know, maybe some other channel. So like for us, it worked for us, but I wouldn't just blindly kind of like approach it the same approach we did. You got to apply it through the same like systematic process to like prioritize what you work on and then like test it from there. Got it. Why, why would you say um, paid search made the most sense for you guys to start with? Um, it's the way Justin validated the business as well. Because like, if you looked at the keyword volumes and even Google Trends, like at the time it was like 100,000 searches per month. And then there's like pretty much no, um, there's like no products at that time three months ago. So like even from a cost per click standpoint, it's really low. And then people searching bone broth, like that alone is like such high purchase intent. And you can even like segment it down to like where to buy bone broth. That alone was getting like three, 5,000 searches per month. So like right away, that's like your first like opportunity to get purchases. And then just because you're getting purchases, you can start optimizing your funnel. Got it. So drive, using paid search first to drive traffic like directly to the product page or where, where was the, the traffic going to? Uh, when we started, it was just, uh, we actually used ClickFunnels. Um, so it's just like a ClickFunnels page, um, just mainly because we could do like a lot of the upsells and whatnot. And then ultimately we switched to like Shopify. Um, by the time we switched to Shopify, we were pretty like mature. But before it was just using uh, pretty much like ClickFunnels. God, I would love to hear more about the, the funnel then. So people are landing on this, this ClickFunnels page and what was the offer and what were the upsells? Uh, so it's evolved quite a bit, but specifically to ClickFunnels, um, the most classic one we've been trying is like a 20% off. Um, we usually do like three tiers. So it's like a low tier, which was uh, six cartons. High tier was everything from like nine cartons, or mid tier was nine cartons. 12 cartons was uh, 18 cartons. And then from the ClickFunnels, uh, when you go into the checkout, there's like something called like an order form bump. So just on the checkout page, people can do like a buy four, get two. And then after that, uh, the upsell was essentially just a cross-sell. Um, so like if they bought beef, then they get upsold like chicken. And then if they bought chicken, they got upsold on beef. And then uh, that was pretty much the main one. And then the downsell was pretty much just like a variety pack. God, do you remember the conversion rates back then for, for the, the, I guess, every step in that process from getting that very first discount and then the, the, the bump? Uh, the bump was massive. Uh, I don't remember the specific conversion rates, um, but at that time, just because like the audience and like the there wasn't as much competitors. Like for example, the order form bump I think had about thirty forty percent off in. Like our average order values were like really high back then. Right, and just to explain to the audience that might not know, so the bump is basically just like a check check box to say add this to my to my order. 
Uh, exactly that. So the whole point of the bump is it's not post-purchase. So it's just on a checkout page. So it's just like while like you're putting in your credit card information. It's like right next to the credit card information. It's just like a buy for get to. Got it. Makes sense. Okay. So now the, there's traffic that was going through the funnel and then you, you guys were able to validate the, the, the business and you mentioned optimize the funnel from there. What, what does that mean? Like what, what's the next step once you can see that, okay, we, we aren't, we're at least uh, breaking even if not making more money by sending, sending our, our prospects through this, this funnel so far, what, what steps did you guys take next to optimize it? I'll quickly just go over this one and then Jack probably has thoughts on this. Uh, depends how, like how far you think the funnel starts. So, for example, with affiliates, like the affiliate would be like your prospecting, qualifying, then basically how many people end up wanting to do a promotion. Then once the people do a promotion, you got like the open rates for the influencer, you got the click rates, and then finally once they're on your funnel, it's basically uh, basically like the percentage of people that make it to the cart page, to the checkout page, to the purchase page, and then once you start at least tracking those type of metrics, you can find out kind of like where the bottlenecks are and like where the highest impact opportunities are. Um, and then typically for us, like if you optimize for the top of the funnel first, so basically um, like making sure more people get to your website, then you, that allows you to start optimizing to increase like uh, checkout conversions. But like if you don't have the traffic initially, then that's gonna be your bottleneck. But once you get enough traffic, so like getting enough influencers, then you can start doing proper funnel optimization. But other than that, um, that's what Jack was responsible for onboarding influencers. Got it. So you're basically saying that the click funnels landing page is not going to be the start of funnel. You could optimize even even earlier than that, going all the way back to the affiliates or influencers and their open rates and their their click through rates. Yeah, for sure. Like for example, I could have like an amazing click funnels and like I get twenty visitors and maybe I get like three purchases. You'd be like, oh, that's amazing conversion rates. But like you scale that to like a hundred people or a thousand people, like. Like you just can't do any funnel optimization until you have like enough traffic. God, it makes sense. And I'll add to that, like early on, I mean, our, our landing pages were absolutely hideous. Like I remember like the first big affiliate promotion that we did, I think was with paleo hacks, which is a pretty popular blog. Um, that landing page was just terrible. Didn't do a good job describing the benefits, value prop, all that the pictures were just embarrassing. And that still performed well. We still got conversions on that. So to Willie's point, I do think uh, a big part of it is really identifying those traffic sources and the channels that are going to work and then getting your funnel to a point where it's good enough and that it can convert new customers. And then over time, continue to optimize that and play around with like all the different pages, upsells, you know, flexibility on like the different pricing options. Um, but to Willie's point, I think the big the big starting point is really identifying the, the big channels that are gonna get you a lot of traffic, targeted traffic in particular. Got it. So you guys were so once once it was proven now with, with paid search, moved on to to focusing on affiliates and influencers. How do you determine what kind of influencer, what kind of affiliate will drive the, the quality traffic that you're looking for? Yeah, so I can take this one. Um I, I think so early on when we started, it was it was really uh, a little bit of trial and error. So we, I came from a marketing background that had nothing to do with affiliates. So I was coming at it um, with a clean slate. But one thing I noticed early on was that uh, a lot of affiliate programs um, for like e-commerce and food companies, they they weren't very hands-on. It was pretty much like they they had a page set up on their site, an affiliate could 
find it buried in the footer, uh, apply, and then they were maybe send an email that said like, hey, do these five things and figure it out. Um, so what we wanted to do is take a very you know white glove approach to it and really deliver value to our affiliates beyond just like making them money, right? Even though that's a big driver. Um, so a key for, thing for us, going back to your question, was that we wanted to identify affiliates that we knew would really be able to stand behind our product and would actually use it. So, and this is something that still stands to this day, like if an affiliate or an influencer doesn't like actively use and like our product, we're probably just going to tell them, just don't even worry about promoting it because you're not going to be able to really stand behind it and explain the benefits. So uh, with bone broth, just because it's such a versatile health food, um, where we see a lot of value in terms of the quality of affiliates is finding large uh, influencers in the health and fitness space. Specifically, if they have very large email lists, just because that is our main driver in terms of revenue through affiliate. Um, we do like the occasional social sponsorships, but I would consider that more of like a brand awareness initiative because it is hard, hard to track uh, performance based on just like someone maybe sharing a Facebook post or an Instagram story or whatever. Um, though we're you know always actively testing it. But really what we're looking at to, to qualify qualify an affiliate is like, you know, what does their monthly traffic look like? What's their list size look like? What's the quality of their list? And again, more importantly, like qualitatively, like, are they a good fit for our program? Is this someone that's going to be uh, a super fan of our products and be willing to promote it? Got it. So do you work with them to build out the, the, the email marketing, the, the automation, or is it, is that just left up to them? Um, so I, so I think this is a key point. Like we learned early on that, uh, trying to go broad in, ter in terms of like prospecting and finding affiliates was not the right way to go about it because we ended up wasting a lot of time uh, working with people with smaller audiences, which I mean, it's totally fine if, you're, if you have a smaller audience because the idea is that you're going to grow into a bigger one. But in terms of affiliate, for because it's so performance heavy, um, it's key to really zero in on the, on the people with larger list sizes um, and like larger media properties that you know they're getting thousands of visits a month and typically with those people they are very sharp from a marketing standpoint so they're already like doing a lot of stuff with their email list um you know a, a big part of the, the how they make money every month is typically through affiliate commissions through like a, a bunch of other products so while you know we don't like help them set that up um we do try to make it as easy as possible possible for them to promote. So doing everything from building out email copy swipe that's uh, relevant to their audience. Um, like Wilson said, building out like custom landing pages that we know will, will convert well for the audience. Um, basically anything that we can do to make it easier for them to press send uh, to their email list, just because these guys, especially as you look at more uh, popular influencers, um, they're very busy. They have 10,000 things going on. And so they don't have a lot of time to really like put together a campaign all by themselves. So the more, I guess, assets that we can provide them, the easier it's going to be. Did, did you find that a lot of them use your, your swipe files and, and the copy that you guys suggested? Oh, totally. Yes. Yeah. And, and, it's, and it's important to like frame it to them like, hey, don't just like copy and paste this because it might not be a perfect fit for, for your mm -hmm. audience, but use this as inspiration and then tailor it to your audience. Um, and that seems to work the best.
Got it. So you're not trying to teach these people how to market. You're looking for people that already know how to market because they have large lists. They, they're already spending their, their time working as an affiliate for, for other programs. So you're looking for people that are already experienced. Uh, what is your ideal email, I guess, campaign? Or is it, multiple, is it usually multiple emails? Like how is it usually set? Like if you had an ideal affiliate, how would they be promoting your products through email? Yeah. So, uh, ideally it would be a multi-pronged approach. So typically our campaigns last about a week for an affiliate. And, um, what we'd like to see is for them to send at least two or three emails throughout that week. Um, so usually the first email is like a dedicated email that indoctrinates their audience to our products and usually ties in a personal story that the affiliate has in terms of their experience with the product. And then uh, the, the the last email is usually like a last call. So we'll usually have like timed uh, offers that maybe expire after the campaign ends. And so that last email is a way to, to again, uh, you know, re- reply with like all the information about the offer, why you should use it and, and make sure to give them a little nudge to, to make that purchase. Um, but ideally, like the more touch points that we can get our affiliates to make, whether it's email or even uh, promoting through their social channels, uh, the more revenue they stand to make and same for us. And I think with bone broth in particular, just because it's not like your, uh, commoditized CPG product, like we're not selling toothbrushes, right? We're selling a product that a lot of people aren't aware of. So the more touch points and, 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 and content that an affiliate can provide, uh, during their campaign, I think the more successful it's going to be in, in selling our products to their mm-hmm. audience. So when you look at their metrics, look at their numbers, like what's the threshold for, for the email list size, open rates, or CTR that, that you're looking for? Yeah, I mean, like broadly speaking, uh, anything, anyone with a list like over 50,000, we're definitely going to want to, you know, get get involved with in some type of, of way. And, and that's not saying anyone under 50,000, we're just going to completely ignore. Um, we're, we're in the beginning steps of bringing out like a, building out like a brand ambassador program uh, to where we'll, you know, in return for them promoting us to like more of their smaller audience, we'll, we'll give them like samples every month or something like that. Uh, but going back to your question, 50,000 plus email list and then list quality, that's always a, a fun one to work through because you you don't really know how a campaign is going to perform until they send the email out. You can infer things just based on what they tell you. But really, it's I think it's part of the the challenge is, is staying on top of affiliates and getting their the email metrics from them. Um, so honestly, it really the answer to the email metrics part is it just depends. Like it's it's I think dependent on on the list size and just the quality of their list because we I've seen campaigns to where we might run a campaign with an affiliate where they have like a half million lists, but the list quality is pretty crappy, and so the click through rate might be good, but no one purchases. So uh, I think it's just it's it's really just easy to do like an eye test and and see the results on the back end, and you'll it'll be pretty easy to tell like okay who's who's someone that can perform for us over and over again. Is it reasonable to to ask to start with a smaller campaign and say let's just send it to like ten percent of your list for like some smaller budget if you're just testing this out? Oh, I totally think so. Yeah, we do that a lot, especially uh, with with paid sponsorships as well. Um, to where if we need to if we're not totally sure that an affiliate's a really good match for us, we'll ask if they can do like a segment test to like maybe like half or a quarter of their list. And then that will give us a good insight into what performance would look like. 
Got it. So for anyone that wants to follow in the footsteps and, and start working with influencers through through email, can you always work on a commission with them or will influencers want some kind of base that, that goes along with it? Uh, again, it just depends. Like I, we've done a variety of different deals. We've done straight commission. We've done like a hybrid mix of upfront payment plus commission. And then we've done upfront payment. Uh, for us, and I think for the affiliates long-term, the, the best scenario is, is commissions. If you're a company that has a really good product and a really good funnel, um, then you can get really good performance um, from the affiliate side. And thinking long-term, like affiliates, will, if, they, if they have a list of quality and a very uh, engaged audience, they, they'll stand to make more money on the commission side than any flat rate. I think one thing that we, we have found, and this isn't you know uh, something that's, that's true across every influencer, but a lot of influencers from my experience that aren't at least willing to do some type of hybrid deal that signals to me that their audience might not be super engaged if they're just asking for an upfront payment. So I think that's uh, something that to watch out for if you're trying to get into this channel. Got it. So the the ones that are going to perform the best are probably incentivized to say, just give me a cut of whatever I push through your, your, push through and, and sell. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Just one quick thing to add. One thing to be mindful of is like the major influencers, if you think about how many sales emails they can send in a year, they have limited inventory. So if you're a brand new company with no like historical data or like no previous partnerships, you might have to lean more towards maybe starting out with maybe sponsoring someone that's well known just to get some sort of case study that you can show to future affiliates that you want to bring on being like, hey, this well-known person just did a promotion with us. This is kind of like the numbers. Here's our final metrics. So then once you gain the credibility um, that once they send you traffic that you'll actually convert, then that opens up affiliate uh, commissions. Uh, just Got makes it. it easier. So just to be super clear, you're saying that to, for someone that's starting out, it might make more sense to just pay with not not through a commission or you're paying them uh, upfront to 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 promote your your product through a campaign then you have data to work with then you have a case study to present to other influencers uh yeah something to consider which is why mm-hmm. like the paid search was a big part of it too being like hey here's how much traffic you can just do a screenshot of google analytics here's our conversion rates for paid search like just to show that your funnel converts like the worst thing you can do is like do a pure affiliate commission to a major and then they send you traffic and your funnel is just like you just haven't figured it out yet and then they'll never work with you again I see what you're saying because now that if you are using paid search or you you're uh, you're basically you need to have some kind of data to optimize your funnel then also to present the data to to an influencer that you, that you might want to to work with uh, at least in, until you're like a like relatively well known um, right just have some sort of like data that shows your funnel works. Makes sense. How, how often do you guys uh, revisit running a campaign with the same influencer? Typically, we try to uh, set up a campaign at least once a quarter. Um, some of some of influencers or affiliates are super busy, so that's what we should do for. Uh, but others um, that are very tied to like our product and really stand behind it, we can we will see them promote us you know, once a month, uh, if not even more frequently. So it, again, it really depends, but I think generally speaking, if we can get them to promote once a quarter, that allows us to refresh the creatives, uh, whatever the offer is, because a big thing that you got to watch out for 
is not uh, burning out their audience by just sending the same offer over and over and over again, which is a challenge that we faced early on when we only had uh, two SKUs to work with. So we had to do a lot of creative thinking in terms of how to uh, engage their audiences in new ways. But yeah, I think that's a big thing is like anytime you're approaching affiliate to do like another promotion, uh, make sure it's something fresh and and, and dip, a little bit different. And if you can customize it to whatever their audience is, because I think they'll be definitely more open to to working with you um, when they when they when they can get that feedback. In, in your experience, what's is it better to find multiple influencers that that likely have the same audience, or do you want to go broad and try to find influencers that have completely different audiences? So for us and Willie, please feel free to chime in here. I think what we've done is we tried to double down on sub niches. So like when we first started, we were our goal was to really just blanket anyone that is related to paleo just because all of our products are paleo friendly. And so uh, I think that paid off for us just because we were able to focus in not only on the types of people we're going after, but also what like our funnels would look like and what copy would points that we would hit on. Um, And I think when you drill down into like a sub niche like that, uh, just because these these communities are pretty close knit, they'll they'll be talking to their friends, especially if performance looks really good, and uh, you'll start seeing kind of a snowball effect to where you'll get like your first couple of big influencers or affiliates to promote, and if it does really well, they'll typically uh, refer you to to their friends that are also in the paleo space. So that's how we did it uh, for the most part. But Wilson, feel free to add anything else. No, it's pretty much said everything. Like it becomes focused, right? Like if you try to do paleo in a different category, let's say like CrossFitters, one you don't have like the like you don't have the funnels or you don't have the creatives all figured out. Like you just spread your resources. Whereas you can just focus on like one category. In our case, it was like paleo at the start. Like we haven't even saturated the entire paleo influencer space just yet. But just by focusing on paleo and just because we're so focused, you know who the good influencers are. You know all the big names and you can work your way up to like bigger and bigger influencers. And your creative just keeps getting better and better. Your funnel keeps getting better and better. So then like there's network effects. So even now, like it ties into the other channels, whether if it's like, I don't know, our email marketing or our Facebook ads, like it's all focused on like paleo. But then by the time we want to enter like a new segment, let's say keto or if we ever want to do Whole30 or um, CrossFitters, then it's like a concerted effort. Whereas like the resources you branch out to a different segment is actually relatively high. I see what you're saying. I like that, that you, you, you focus so that you can, you can reuse essentially a lot of the assets rather than having to go through the cycle of creating everything brand new each time you, you pick a new category. And so speaking of uh, customization, how custom or how personalized are the landing pages that you're driving the influencers traffic to? Yeah, so uh, typically we'll try to co-brand them. Um, So, and through that, what we'll do is we'll try to get a testimonial from the affiliate. Um, Sometimes we'll even get like a video testimonial to add to the page. Um, Anything that can can signal to the, their audience that like, hey, this person actually like loves Kettle and Fire and really stands behind the product. Um, and then beyond that, we'll we'll try our best to get an understanding of, of like what, generally speaking, what their who their audience is. And if we have like a specific funnel for that niche, then we'll we'll typically try to try to do that. Um, 
it, it's definitely, you have to find a happy medium, right? Because if you do all, all this customization for every single affiliate, it's, it just doesn't scale well. So, so that's how kind of our approach is generally speaking. But if there's an opportunity to work with like a big player in a certain space and they want something custom made, um, then we're, we're definitely going to do it. Right. Cause it just makes sense for us. Um, but that's how we kind of approach it. Do you have like a team that you work with too? Uh, do you have a team internally that helps build out these, these custom pages? Wilson, do you want to take this one? Yeah. Um, they're mostly, so like for these personalized pages, it's just like, in a way it's kind of like templates. So like the core template is the same. It's just like elements like, okay, if there's a video, we put it here. Here's where the custom testimonial would go. Here's where we put like a picture of them. So then that's like how, that's the scope of the personalization. But then as far as the execution, uh, yeah, we have like a team of like virtual assistants. So like uh, a lot of them are in the Philippines. We have a designer from Upwork. And then it's just this whole workflow where we just like get the assets, we send it over to them, they create all the pages that they need. So then all we need to do is just like provide the assets and who the influencer is and what the URL should be. And then they just like create these pages on mass. I love that that there's a system that just 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 runs when you when you feed it these assets. So, how many influencers or affiliates do you guys try to work with at any given time? Like, it seems like something that there's a certain point where it's just unmanageable. So, is there like a limit that you guys like to keep it under? Yeah, uh, I feel like we are definitely hitting that ceiling right now. Um, so our team really is is just myself who oversees affiliate. And, Obviously, Willie's helping out with that. And then we have a partnerships manager that's managing all of our ongoing relationships and doing all of our outreach. But I think in terms of like our total affiliate list, I think we're probably close to breaking a thousand now. And then from that, and I think this is pretty common across affiliate programs, uh, like the top 10% make up like 90% of the revenue. So a lot of our time is focused on engaging those relationships. But if you have your campaign stuff all dialed in and you have like all the assets pipeline created like we do uh in terms of running the number of campaigns it's not that uh tough to to do on like an automated basis um but in terms of finding more affiliates and exploring more niches that's there's definitely a ceiling to that just because uh it does require just more manpower and and more people to to be in a position to build relationships uh with these affiliates Got it. So we only covered really PPC and influencer marketing and affiliate marketing so far. And then I think, well, you mentioned that you guys moved over to SEO and content marketing after that. So what made you guys decide let's to, to, to shift focus or at least uh, expand the marketing into that direction where it's around more of a co content SEO play? Uh, the content SEO was mainly Jack, um, but just my short answer is just uh, we realized the keyword volume, a lot of the keywords that our audience would be interested in, and then the competition was really low. So then that served the business case to reinvest quite a bit of the profits into building out the content marketing SEO strategy, um, even though it's not like specifically performance-based. So what's the, I'm assuming you guys have a system around this too to, to create a lot of content. What, what is that like? Can you describe that to me? We have this pretty dialed in as well. So we're actually now working with an agency to help with content production. So I work directly with them to uh, really build out our strategy in terms of like what topics we're going to take on and what SEO opportunities exist. 
And then they pretty much uh, totally own the content creation and editorial process. So they have their own uh, network of freelance writers that are uh, have a lot of background in like nutrition and health. And so they will write long-term content and then they'll edit it and then we'll publish it up on our blog. So that's kind of our workflow now. We did, we actually did have a really awesome head of content marketing. Um, she moved out of country. And so we did have it all in house, which I think is something that we could potentially move back towards in the future, just because you have more control over it. But right now with our current setup, it works. I think just the, the critical piece is if you, if you are outsourcing your content, you have to find really a really, really quality agency um, because it's very easy for you to go down that path of working with an agency that talks a big talk and then you get a lot of crappy content. And especially in the health space, just because we want to make sure our information is of value and factually correct, which is very important. And so, uh, yeah, my, my recommendation there is if you're going the agency route, uh, basically with anything really it's it's to make sure that you can vet out these agencies to 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 know that they do quality work and they're going to be a great long-term partner mm. are you are you able to say who the agency is that you guys work with oh totally I'll, i will give them a shout out uh, it's the agency is called growth machine uh and nat eliason runs it he's a super sharp guy and the website is yourgrowthmachine.com you are welcome, Nat. <laughs> <laughs> so, what is the uh, the input that you give then? If you if you work with an agency, a high quality agency, like what what is your involvement that they that they need from you to be able to do their part? So, if this is just generally speaking involving managing agencies, I think Wilson has a lot of good stuff to say on that. Uh, just in general with managing agencies, um, depends on the type of agencies, like. Um, like the how you manage like a development agency versus like a paid agency is different, but just in general, it's just like setting the guardrails of what the measure, like what the reporting will look like. Um, so just having a good trend of since before and after the agency started, and then kind of like some sort of like the success metric, and then you're just working with them closely in terms of just setting the high level goals and kind of like the overall direction. What you'll typically see with agencies is they'll be really good tactically, but they'll miss kind of like how to integrate it with the overall company. So, for example, um, if you go for like a paid acquisition agency, they might not see the potential network effects with other channels. So it's your job to kind of like connect it and then connect them with the relevant stakeholders within your company so they can work together to make it more impactful. Um, But just in general, in agencies, like picking the right agencies, like you got to go referrals, like there's um, just go referral based to find the right agencies. Um, just talk to people that hire agencies and are at a successful brand um, to find the right agencies. But I don't know. That's pretty much it. Mm-hmm. Now, when you, if you're outsourcing uh, content creation, whether it's to be an agency or just like a freelancer or something, how, are you guys the one that that's responsible for the, uh, determining the keywords or determining what, what what kind of content you want written and then they do the actual writing portion like who's responsible for the uh, the I guess the the topic yeah that's a great question um, I, I think early on uh, just because agencies work with a bunch of different companies in different industries you really have to uh, get on the same page with them on like what you're trying to do and what your like overarching strategy is so that typically uh, requires uh, a deep dive phone call or in-person conversation to really talk through like, okay, 
what's happened to this point? Where are we at? Where do we want to go in? What, what, how, how do we want this content uh, to be expressed in terms of like tone and style? And then from there, uh, early on, there might be a couple kinks just because, you know, you're working with an agency for the first time. But over time, if they're worth their salt, you'll you'll learn that they're they're pretty intelligent and can really pick up on you know what you're going for. And at this point, like in our work with uh, Growth Machine for content, like they they pretty much handle everything from identifying keyword opportunities, um, analyzing our growth where 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 we might be slipping a bit. And so they're pretty hands on in terms of just handling that whole content flywheel. To where in my role I'm just overseeing it, and and I'll I'll have a final look on like editorial just to make sure everything looks okay, um, and we'll we'll have like reoccurring meetings just to talk strategy. But I think that's where the power of an agency can come in if they're really really solid, then they should be able to pick up what you're doing pretty quickly and really run with it and deliver results. Mm-hmm. Where's yeah. the content that you guys are producing? Where's that going? So in, in our work with, with our agency, all that content is on the blog. So that's, they're, they're primarily focused on creating long-form SEO targeted content in like the general health and fitness space. Um, but beyond that, we also use uh, a creative team that Willie can talk more about to tackle all of our main site assets and add copy. As far as where this content is, blog.kettleandfire.com. Like just a quick note on just content marketing SEO. Like the way we view it is like every content we create for the blog, it has to be back because of like some SEO opportunity. Um, otherwise, it's really tough to make content marketing work uh, because if you think about the cost per article, the whole point of SEO is like once you get it ranking, like the cost per click just starts to trend towards zero because you just pay for that one upfront cost. And then once you start ranking, um, one, it's hard to dethrone. Like it's hard for anyone else to kind of dethrone you if you're doing it properly. But then that's the true value of content marketing, but you need the SEO backing it. So like if you're trying to, I see a lot of people, like a lot of bloggers or a lot of like um, beginners, they just hear about content marketing because like it's the hot craze right now, but then they're not going about it with like an SEO purpose. So then it's just not sustainable. Whereas if you go uh, pair content marketing specifically to attack the SEO opportunities, that's how you make uh, the economics work out because now it can tie in with your other channels. Got it. So the mistake you see other brands, especially the smaller ones, make is that they just kind of write about whatever they want on their blog. You're saying that if you want to actually make content marketing a viable uh, channel in the long term, it has to be backed by data that you find through your like through SEO research. Exactly. And then just beyond like, the value of content marketing and SEO, once you have kind of like you're building your own audience, it ties into like all the other channels you own. So for example, influencer and affiliate, like if we, if there's like an influencer that we want to reach out to, so like instead of just being like, hey, how about like you promote us? It's more like sometimes we'll like include them in an expert roundup. We can be like, hey, how about we like promote you to our blog that gets like 600,000 monthly visits? How about we promote you to like our email list? So now like you're providing value up front. And then it also ties in with like paid acquisition, whether it's like Facebook retargeting, ties in with email marketing really well, lead gen, ties in with just the creation of funnels because like all the content is there. Anytime we want to like branch off to new content, I can just go within a blog and just like copy paste a lot of like the content that's already written. Like there's a lot more than just content marketing SEO. Like there's like loops that ties in with all like the remaining strategy of all the other channels. 
Got it. So the the, the content marketing can be the, the step that, that leads to conversion, but then you could also reuse it as assets to to bolster your other marketing channels. 100%. Got it. Now, you mentioned that you can do things like retargeting. I'm assuming you mean that someone lands on the, on the blog and then you, you catch them later somewhere else. Do you guys do any like paid promotion of the content to push it initially? Uh, not no. really. Because... <laughs> Like, yeah, like the name of the game is SEO. So then there's like, you get a little bit of traffic, but um, like if we were to do paid promotions because there's some sort of like performance aspect, whether it's because we want leads or because we want sales. But then if that's the purpose, like we have better opportunities to um, achieve that same objective. Do you find, is that almost always the, the true in any situation or is it, does it, do you think it still depends on the company? It depends on the, on the industry. Uh Again, it's always contextual. It depends. Um, I'm just trying to think when it'd be valuable to do like a boost or like promote a specific piece of content. Probably if you're more of an enterprise, high cost software where now like marketing is more just to establish lead leads and thought leadership, then maybe that's like the whole purpose. Um, so it depends on the context. Makes sense. So once you you want you guys start focusing on the SEO and content marketing. So you mentioned the, the the retargeting, and I guess we can jump into now the the last stage that you mentioned, which is around uh, Facebook ads. What's your strategy there? What's the strategy with with uh, Facebook advertising? Uh, first of all, for most people, I wouldn't <laughs> like everyone talks about Facebook ads. It's getting tough to work, um, which is why for us it's like really our third or fourth channel. Whereas I see a lot of brands they start it with its first channel. Um, so the First thing with Facebook ads, um, the strategy, I'll, I'll frame it in terms of like how to get to where we were now. Because like I, if I talk about the strategy we're at now, like it's not relatable, I think, to a lot of your listeners. So like I think the first step that it's kind of common sense, but I don't see people do is like understand what your contribution to margin is, understand what your cogs. Ultimately, you really want to understand what your break even like return on ad spend target is. So once you know that, that's like your target. So then you can at least have a rough idea if Facebook ads is even like a viable strategy for you. Because for example, if your average order value or your margins are just like out of whack, then you got to do some, like you got to figure out some way to bundle your product to make the economics of Facebook ads work. But just in general, just high level, like that's why Facebook ads is generally better once you have existing traffic sources, because you can start off with retargeting. Again, your retargeting audience, so people that already land on your website, that's going to be your highest probability of success. But what you leverage that with is you use that high probability of success to figure out your creatives, figure out your funnel. So typically, your creative testing at least have like four proven ads. So like there's a process to figure out your proven ads. Everything from like just like doing variant testing on your visuals to find out what visuals work best, then your copy, then eventually your headline. Eventually, once you have about like three or four proven ads, um, the whole point is like you're trying to bring the cost per click as low as possible. Because if you try to do funnel optimization and your ads aren't performing well, you're just paying for a lot of that traffic that's required to do the funnel optimization. So in terms of the order of operation, like just start with the targeting first, which is your retargeting. Then after retargeting, you focus on the creatives to bring down your cost per click. Once your cost per click is low enough, you can start optimizing for the funnel, whether if it's increasing your average order value, conversion rates, uh, revenue per visitor. Then once you kind of get that where it's actually profitable, 
then depending on where the other profits from your company is coming from, you can reinvest the profits to start doing an R&D to figure out the cold audiences. Because to get your cold audiences profitable on day zero, it's going to be extremely difficult. And it's going to take like time and then the money to run the ads to figure out how to get like your lookalike audiences working, how to get your interests working, your cold audiences. But hopefully by then you at least have some sort of creatives that you know work well for your retargeting audiences. Then you have a funnel that kind of works. But if you just start with Facebook ads, unless you have a big pool of like funds to start with, like it's really going to be tough to get it to work. Right. Yeah. I think a lot of people will start with Facebook ads to get that cold traffic. And they, there's so many things that could be causing you to have really uh, terrible return on your ad spend that you don't know which one to, to configure. But the approach that you're giving kind of allows you to isolate each point one at a time. Yeah, exactly. Like we start from prospecting, like you better know what you're doing on Facebook ads and you better have like a decent pool of money where you're fine with like being ROI negative until you can figure it out. Like otherwise you're just getting run empty too quick. Got it. So for the, uh, let's say that there's someone out there that wants to get started in Facebook ads and they already have traffic coming in so they can start retargeting. What is the, what is your setup there? Like how do you determine what the, the kind of camp, what, what the kind of messaging should be when it comes to, to retargeting? Uh, depends. So first, like for retargeting, just set up the targeting first. So just do like your, um, there's two ways to kind of like improve your targeting for retargeting. One is by page depth. So like people that land on your landing page versus cart page versus checkout page. Obviously the people who don't buy, but they abandon on checkout, like if you retarget those people, they have like the highest probability of success. So you can kind of cater to creative to like why, like it'd be more like doing the DPA ads or just like more of just like cart checkout reminders. So that's one way. And then the other is based on recency. So like now you segment it by like zero to seven days, eight to 30 days, 31 to 60, et cetera. Your zero to seven days are going to be like your highest like probability of success conversions, like your best customers. So then you can start combining um, based on recency and page depth to really identify um, basically your best leads in a way. And then from that, it's just going through the creative testing process. Um, so in terms of how to find the creatives that work best for your audiences, again, go for the highest impact area right away. The highest impact area is just visuals. So test your visuals. So the way we do it, um, again, this takes money. Um, but for example, um, if there's one ad set, we do like 10 ads of those 10 ads. Each one will have the same copy. Each one will have the same headlines. The only difference is like the visual. Then we're just trying to find out which visuals get the best relevancy scores, the best click-through rates, the best conversions. Then once you find kind of like two or three nice visuals, you just repeat that same process, but now you control for, you just keep the same visual and you just uh, vary the copywriting. And then once you have the visual and copywriting, that will be pretty much the 80-20 in terms of your creative. Um, and then just through that process, you'll find out what you're positioning, what type of visuals work best. Maybe like, I don't know, a product, a lifestyle product versus like a product, like a picture of your product. Um, like through that process, you'll figure out what works best for your audience. Got it. So if you're talking about, I guess the, the most, the most uh, profitable, most valuable uh, audience to retarget is someone that just recently left or abandoned the cart. What is the messaging when they, if that's the case, like if, I guess that's a low hanging fruit that someone that's getting started with Facebook ads retargeting specifically can go after? 
Uh, like I can say the tactics, like for us, it's like, uh, a lot, like we do a lot of our testimonial ads, so like the video ads of our influencers talking about our product. So just like a lot of social proof, but again, uh, sometimes like there's other ads that might work best. Like maybe just a, uh, like, Hey, you left some products in your checkout or just like a normal ad, like just test it and you'll find out what messaging works. Like there's no like key tactic that would work for or just no like key messaging where like social proof will work all the time for people that abandon on checkout no like test it like uh, put it through that process and you'll figure out the messaging that works best awesome so kettleandfire.com is a website what goals do you guys each have for the business like what do you guys want to focus on in, in terms of the the marketing and the, 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 the growth that you guys are going after I'll quickly take this one uh, at least for my personal ones um, the overall direct to consumer like Hell and Fire, it starts off with a big uh, revenue, like an overall revenue target, and then it breaks down between new and repeat revenues. So my main focus right now is on the repeat revenues, and then if you break down repeat revenues, uh, specific goals in terms of uh, the non-subscription repeat revenues, and then subscription revenues. And then if you break down those a bit further down, then there's like specific uh, metrics, everything from like subscription opt-ins to like retention from uh, the first two billing cycles and then also like average revenue um there's a lot but ultimately uh it boils down to the overall revenue and then mine is specifically the repeat revenues yeah and i'll just add i think uh beyond looking at our revenue goals and all of our quantitative kpis that we're going after i think what's more important for us even now going into 2019 is really building out the category and making bone broth more of a, a mainstream food, just because while bone broth has been trending in popularity, uh, I think the average consumer still isn't too familiar with it. So I think going into next year, not only are we going to you know, push the pedal on all these performance marketing channels that we're already working on, but I think we're also going to be expanding more into uh, investing in brand awareness related channels uh, that will hopefully help build the brand and, and we're fine with not maybe seeing an immediate ROI on that. So I think that's something uh, in our rear view mirror as well as we continue to expand and scale. Very cool. So speaking of expanding and scaling, you guys mentioned that there's a great opportunity to to work with you guys, and which is uh, uh, awesome because now you guys obviously know what you're doing and lots of experimentation, so there's lots to learn. Can you talk a little bit more about those opportunities? Uh, sure. Um, first, just go to kettleandfire.com slash pages slash careers. Um, you'll see the job openings there. But I think the main thing is even if you don't see a job opening, uh, there's a section if you scroll down for if you think you're going to be a good fit. Um, click on that link. Tell us more about yourself. Um, and if that application looks good, um, we'll chat. Um, but the main positions that we have in the horizon, it's going to be uh, either a junior intermediate growth marketer, that's one. Um, we're looking for a social media marketer, uh, potentially a paid search, uh, paid PPC, so AdWords being uh, Pinterest ads even, and also Amazon PPC. Uh, and then brand marketer, and then a bunch from like operations as well and retail sales. Um, but just in general, I think just check out the careers page. And my only advice is try to be a bit more creative. Uh, we're not big fans of just looking at resumes and cover letter. Just try to be a bit more creative and find out how you can offer value up front. And then that's how you can get our attention. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time, guys. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Shopify Masters, the e-commerce podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs 
powered by Shopify. To get your exclusive 30-day extended trial, visit shopify.com slash masters.